0: This is German
1: Warfare, the battle of ideas. The Western propaganda machine is very well oiled.
0: It is. That is very true. The time is is overly ripe to tackle some um, some major myths that have spread pretty far and wide across the Western Zeitgeist, pretty much anybody who listens to um, not just mainstream media, but even many alternative media, good good intentioned alternative media platforms have all fallen prey to certain common mythologies that treat the center of all evil in this world. The thing that we should all learn to hate and fear as the cause of all of our problems and the precarious future that we're being pushed into is China, the government, the Communist Party of China. Um And there's various variations on this from the, you know, both a more corporate media consumer mindset, both for Democrats as well as Republicans, liberals, conservatives, as well as alternative media consumers. There's different narratives, different spins that are really working hard with a certain amount of sophistication that have been utilizing similar techniques that were uh, applied and, and crafted during the Cold War, the age of nuclear, you know, mutual assured nuclear annihilation, that traumatized so many people, baby boomers and, and slightly younger baby boomers. Um, around you know, certain spells, certain charms, certain um, arguments that have portrayed the great villains as China and to a certain degree Russia. You know, so typically if people are, are of a liberal leaning, then the um, narratives that, they, that have been crafted for them portray Russia as the, the harbinger of all evil. And if there are slightly more conservative-leaning folk out there, then the narratives have been sort of spun to portray Russia's key ally, China, as the harbinger of all evil. But in either case, what's being missed and the the lack of focus and and confusion is that the real hand of our problems and the the actual conspiratorial agencies that are trying to, to manage us into a great reset... And a depopulated world order under a one world government are directly tied to the same hereditary caste systems, hereditary structures of power that have been there for many generations, hundreds, if not thousands of years, that the American founding fathers recognized as the key um, opposition to establishing a different form of government founded upon natural law and the consent of the governed. And every great leader um, in different parts of the world, at different times, who arose, and usually you know them by the fact that they get assassinated and don't live through their their presidencies or or you know <laughs> their 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 terms as leaders. You could usually get a sense of that they're doing something uh, in opposition to this other thing, this parasite. They uh, they they were aware. They were much more aware, and it, that this this is there. So today, again, there's so much confusion. I thought you know you and I were talking about mm. really just tackling the China question head on and, and just debunking some myths.
1: This is not a conversation about why communism is great. This is not in support of the Chinese Communist Party necessarily. This is not about moving to China because it's somehow better than where we currently live. This is about analyzing Western propaganda.
0: Simple as that. Right. Agreed. With that yes. out of the way,
1: with that out of the way.
0: <laughs> so, as a um, some some remarks just on my end to uh, to situate this. Um, my wife and I just produced a, a an eighty page uh, dossier called "Breaking Free of Anti China Psyops: How the Cold War is Being Revived and What You Can Do About It." It looks like this. Um, Cynthia Chung is my, my wife and co Um, she herself is the author of several books and has been a writer for strategic culture and the president of the Rising Tide Foundation, which we, we set up in Montreal in 2019. It's got about nine different chapters tackling nine different angles of major sacred cow myths that have been cooked up. Um, and many of these myths you'll find at the root have CIA MI6 creative writers, um, behind them. And we just debunk it, and we go through a lot of history. One of the things that we do is, uh, well, there's, there's many things. But I think getting to your question of the past, what's shaping the current present, which is obviously the past, um, there's, some, there's something interesting. I, I recently wrote this article called an Earth Day Special in Defense of Climate Science and CO2. Part of what I do in the original introduction is I introduce something that many of your viewers probably have heard about called Climate Gate. Have you, have you heard about Climate Gate, Jerm?
1: Yes, about, so about 2010, more or less.
0: Yeah, this is in 2009, at the end of 2009, um, in the weeks leading up to the COP, COP14 summit in Copenhagen, there was a major momentum amidst the economic collapse, amidst an avian flu right, that was circulated as well as part of a potential global pandemic. Um, There was this acceleration towards what was promised to be the first time a global governing mechanism, a new set of mechanisms would be created that would be above nation states to impose carbon uh, elimination quotas onto the nations of the world as part of this uh, acceleration towards decarbonization and reducing the the global warming down to like 1.5 degrees, as if that has anything to do with science or anything to do with carbon dioxide emissions. But the point being, is it failed? You know, Obama, Merkel, um, Sarkozy, many other Western puppets were all convened for three days, and in this article, I demonstrate. You know, I demonstrate how this failed. Part of it involved East Anglia University, which saw a leak of a lot of their climate data that was exposed, demonstrating that they've been lying on their climate models to make it seem as though things were getting warmer when, in fact, there was no correlation in a serious way between carbon dioxide caused by humans and uh, climate change. Um, and you had the actual emails from Phil, uh, you know, various various officials high up at East Anglia uh, who were basically admitting to that. So that was one aspect. The other reason why this, this world government program failed is that you had China and uh, Russia, uh, sorry, no, China and India, who basically locked their delegations in a room and, um, and didn't come out, didn't participate, didn't sign on to any carbon re- restrictions, and didn't allow for any world government uh, programs to, to go online. So that bought us some time in many ways And this is a good paradox for people who are today freaked out about one world government, the attack against industrial civilization, you know, utilizing the cover of demonizing carbon dioxide, which is otherwise known as a plant food. And uh, the fact that the reason why this didn't work was because China and Russia, uh, China and India, with the help of some Russians and some Africans around Sudan at the time, um, sabotaged it from within. And, you know, some courageous people, it seems from uh, Britain itself, possibly leaked something from within um so that's the first thing as far as recent history so to say that china right there is the super villain promoting world government to disrupt nation states which is what a lot of people have tended to fall into um creates a paradox if you believe that then how do you explain away what they did in 2009 to save the sovereign nation state system this also re- resulted in george soros coming out saying china is not really playing ball in a, in a in an interview with Christia Freeland. And in it he basically said look China is realizing we 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 were wrong by not making them proper stakeholders in the new world order we need to try to get them back on on um, the script because uh, they're uh, they're seeing that they're not going to benefit so we need to try to uh, persuade them to come back online. So you you know you have these different interesting things. Now what I would say for their history is that this, the last time that this was done in a serious way, because this is not the first time that there's been an attempt at a one-world government great reset with a eugenics religion for an elite to uh, manage the human herd. This is not the first time it's been done. And in fact, over the last century, there were three other cases where this nearly happened. And instead of China and India being the ones who saved the world, which is the case in the current situation, it was for, previously... Um, american patriots around people like warren harding who worked very 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 hard you know they were courageous fighters people like senator george norris uh senator la follette um leading figures from both both political parties in the 1920s were at war with this anglo-american deep state penetration running a fifth column inside of the united states itself and who were behind the league of nations and the league of nations was originally the first attempt at a one world government right and and I think,
1: correct me if I'm wrong, the League of Nations was started by a South African, Jan Smuts.
0: Jan Smuts, that's right. And Jan Smuts was a direct um, participant in the Alfred Milner Roundtable movement that had set itself up, utilizing the, the massive funds bequeathed to a trust by Cecil Rhodes when he died to carry out the will and the Last Will and Testament, which was the, the governing manifesto of the Cecil Rhodes fortunes, to create a global secret society to discipline the, uh, the civil service of um, the empire with the focus on restoring the grandeur of the British empire at its peak. In the fa- And this was being done when there was a time when there was an existential crisis amongst the, uh, the British oligarchical inner elites who were seeing that there was a new emergence of a new type of society premised around the ideals of the American Revolution, the ideal that everybody is, is made equal in the eyes of a creator and endowed with inalienable rights, out of which the consent of the governed gives authenticity and authority to law, and um, the economic expression of that in the material world was seen in the form of vast increases in technological progress, the leaping over of limits to growth throughout the 19th century. This was driven by you know the Abraham Lincoln networks that had forced formerly been uh, in the, the the Whig Party of the United States, where two Whig presidents, the only two Whig presidents before Lincoln's murder, were both murdered. Um, I say murdered. People say, oh, they died of poisoning. No, <laughs> it, it, it's called, or food poisoning or something or eating too many uh, cherries and cold milk in the case of Zachary Taylor. Um, no, they were they were killed and they were both enacting the exact same policy of constitutional banking, working on a foreign policy that was premised around cooperation with your neighbors and in opposition to the structures of wall street and the british east india company's um, minions around the world internationally so lincoln after he dies he still has many collaborators who are fighting in in high positions of influence within the congress within the senate within even elements of the of the the executive branch They, they organize themselves around garfield who ends up getting assassinated as well by a British-directed um, assassination operation in 1880, a few months before the assassination of Alexander II, the uh, the czar who saved America during the Civil War, by a London-directed anarchist uh, outfit that kills him. You have the same thing with McKinley, killed by an anarchist terrorist cell, which is run by Emma Goldman, a person who is arrested and then is Taken out of is 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 her her bail is paid for by Bertrand Russell in 1902 after killing McKinley, where she runs a um, a synthetic cult of ideological anarchist terrorists um, in the United States. One of whom is deployed as a Polish idiot, a, a, a disposable idiot to kill McKinley, who's trying to revive the Lincoln policies. And what what are the and, and she's so she's bailed out by Bertrand Russell. Both of them are members of the neo-Malthusian League. The, the neo-malthusian League is the inner echelon priesthood of empire that that has present or tried to organize society around the Malthusian uh law of overpopulation and that all elites are responsible to manage the the herd the animals called humans before they become too numerous util, utilizing the gifts uh nature has given of controlled pandemics controlled wars controlled starvations famines they did that in in ireland they did that in india and we saw you know a certain um like i said there was an existential crisis because the system of lincoln despite the assassinations was still spreading and nations like russia in the 1890s france in the 1890s germany um japan uh increasingly china under its 100 days of renewal of of reform in the 1890s we're all embarking and adopting this new way of thinking of an anti-Malthusian world order founded upon national banking, national protectionism, national sovereign controls of your of your destiny, which is the expression of the interests of the people and the will of the people, populism in, in the best sense of the term. That was spreading internationally with rail development. Uh, Development projects like um, electricity grids, electrification being applied for civilian use, railroads to create interconnectivity and to liberate nations from dependency upon British controlled shipping routes, which is how this tiny island, right? That's a big paradox for some people. And we're going to, I'm doing all this for context so that we have a, a stage set where, where we'll see the actors from China, from America play a role. Um, and especially the League of Nations, right? To understand what is the League of Nations? What was uh, Jan Smuts actually part of? What was this round table? So the existential crisis was that, you know, the empire realized, well, they're not able to hang on. People are, are not playing their game anymore. And this one little island was able to control the world through their control of the City of London fin- finan- uh, financial manipulations, obviously usury speculation, getting nations to adopt free trade, was a great way the empire was able to get nations to, um, their target nations would would be induced stupidly to say, okay, we won't have a national bank, we won't have protectionism, we'll just allow free trade. And that was great if you're a British East India company or a financier oligarchy that can, you know, <laughs> that can just rape and pillage and undermine your nation, or you have now free markets determining the value of commodities instead of actual production and and actual human beings who need things in the real world, If you just have the markets then all of a sudden opium becomes a source of value which is what was done to destroy china in the cause in the case of the opium wars right the first and the second and you had and when you know the the chinese had leaders who said no we we're not going to allow opium to to continue to corrupt and destroy the soul of our people well then you had british gunboats sent to enforce free trade as the law of the seas and poured down their throats, which was really done in, in in force, especially after the Second Opium War that got Hong Kong to become the, uh, the base of operations in Shanghai of British manipulation um, of China, which it had remained all the way until the, this very present day. It's still known as the MI6 of the Pacific. It always has been, Hong Kong. Shanghai to a certain degree as well. HSBC, Hong Kong Shanghai Bank of Commerce, was created at that time in 1865 in order to enforce and to help facilitate the international drug tra- trade, <clears> trade. <throat> so that was part of the century of humiliation. Britain had also not just been working at that time to destroy America through civil war, and I've written several books actually, going into deep dives on how the British in- British intelligence was behind the creation of the civil war uh, that um, exploded onto the scene in the eighteen 18- in eighteen sixty. But they were also organizing a similar civil war in. China itself in the midst in the 1850s, into the 1860s, amidst the Opium War, the second, you know, the second opium war, you had the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom, which was a synthetic pseudo-Christian cult organized by certain Jesuit connected missionaries from Britain and the United States who had indoctrinated a, an idiot school teacher to become convinced that he was the, the brother of Jesus Christ, and he created a synthetic Christian cult of 30 million members. That took control of one third of the territory of China and tried to overthrow the uh, the Qing dynasty in the 18th. And it was because of the British support of this operation that the British were able to then say to the Qing amidst the the Opium War that look, unless you you give up and declare yourself uh, at the mercy of the British and 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 you know <laughs> give up on defending yourself during the Opium Wars, we will officially declare and recognize. The, Tian, the, the, the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom as an independent sovereign entity of the legitimate rulers of China. And that was something that they put onto the bargaining as a bargaining chip, bringing the Qin delegates uh, to the, the bargaining table and carving up you know China in the form of, of Hong Kong and what have you. They were doing the same thing to the South as well, to Lincoln, saying, like, look, we are going to recognize the Confederate South. That's what Lord Palmerston, Lord uh, Gascoigne Cecil, we're, we're also talking about doing was recognizing the Confederate South as an independent sovereign country. And the only thing that stopped them, which would have also have granted Britain the right to go and thus formally, openly assist militarily with the Confederate South, the only thing which stopped them was that Russia under Alexander II deployed the Russian Navy to New York and California as a direct message to the, the British... Um, oligarchs saying look if you if you do what you're threatening to do it will be war with russia and that's what saved it bought the u.s a lot of space to uh, to do the proper battle and to put down the rebellion so it, it worked where where the 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 better forces of humanity succeeded in stopping this divide to conquer strategy in america because of russia and, and and the u.s it the better forces failed in the case of china so again that's the part of the 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 trauma of what affected the Chinese psyche. If you want to understand what, what, what has been shaping the subtle forces of the Chinese way of looking at the world, it's things like this, their, their direct experience with having foreign directed intelligence agencies, set up synthetic cults in their country to subvert them from within the opium war uh, drug trade that consciously destroyed th- their, their youth and created organized crime syndicates run by the triads, which were, were set up by the British empire as self-controlling systems of corruption in China, later on the Green Gangs under uh, Chiang Kai-shek came out of this. Um, The the, the triads were never authentically Chinese. They were always self-managed parts of the the corrupt class that were created as well as in India when you had 10,000 British troops controlling 400 million Indians for several generations. How was that done, right? They organized corrupt castes and um, organized crime structures around India's production of opium and and drugs. Again, that was then fed to China, and then they self-managed their own people under that caste system that was themselves, even the elites of India were beholden to the interest of the city of London. Same thing for the triad. Same thing for the Shanghai clique of billionaires who are still there today, not fully purged, although a lot of de-weeding of the deep state garden has occurred over the past 10 years, there's still traitor's elements. So I think the first thing to keep in mind, number number 1, China has a deep state. Everybody has a deep state. It's not like there's su- such a thing called the Chinese the Chinese government as a one-dimensional character. It doesn't exist. Just like saying the US it's it's an absurd thing to say the US wants this. What what, what what that doesn't mean anything. There's an oligarchy with deep state fifth columns everywhere. Some nations have extracted have gone to war with them, others have let these deep state operations take over right but it's all a process so the the empire as i was saying the british empire was going through an existential crisis nations were becoming too strong the us britain uh, sorry the us russia germany were unifying around developing win-win cooperation strategies national banking and I, i'm going to be repetitive because i really want some of these concepts to really sink deeply into the audience's mind we often hear words but we they don't sink in mm. protectionism national banking the idea that, that value is not in random acts of desire, hedonistic desires of the free market, but rather in the productive powers of labor that you're investing in, which creates an entrepreneurial class, as well as a national system of, of economics. So it's not like either or, private enterprise or the nation state. It's like you have examples of harmonization of uh, these, these two different things that have been dichotomized in our current age. It's not free market capitalist versus communist. That, that wasn't the debate before the Cold War it was Empire or nation state national economy or Empire So this nations were working together overcoming British traps of trying to induce wars and uh, and the the idea of Malthus's law of population was was not popular people were realizing that Malthus said that by 1900 the world would be vastly overpopulated. And instead, what we found is that the population quality of life and quantity of people that you could sustain, infant mortality was decreasing, poverty was decreasing, average life expectancy was increasing, average productivity per capita was increasing um, due to a different way of thinking about value. And again, it was spreading. So... The empire was was in a crisis. They couldn't trust their auxiliaries, their managers, the different governors deployed to different parts of the empire to carry out this evil policy of killing millions of people by controlled famines, the way they did in Ireland or India. That was a controlled intention. That was not an accident of the empire. That also was a Malthusian... Russia,
1: hmm? Russia also. And the Stalin. They
0: did partially kill... Well, that and that that was, again, you're right. And the, the fallacy that some people have been led to believe because of the rewriting of the last 80 years of history is that it was Stalin who consciously carried out this killing of the Ukrainians in uh, Holodomir. That actually was done not by Stalin, but by the Anglo-American bankers who, con- who actually made a policy saying that Russia, which had bounties of gold in 1931, 32, they had a lot of gold. The Russian bankers centered in the city of London told the Russians, we will not accept the debt repayments that you owe us in, in gold anymore. You're only The only debt repayments that we recognize will be in food in 1931, 32, 33. And by forcing that demand, that resulted in very much the same type of ex, uh, effects as we saw with the, the so-called potato potato famine a century earlier, as if the Irish were eating only potatoes and had no other livestock or, or wheat, which they did. Uh, or India. Um, So yeah, it's a controlled Malthusian. It's a scientific management of the population, and a lot of their their managers of empire didn't have the stomach to carry out that evil. We saw many examples of British imperialist governors. Frederick Seymour of of British Columbia was one of them who couldn't carry out this killing of his people, and he had to be eliminated in, in the 1870s. But so Cecil Rhodes, who was a disciple of, of John Ruskin, of, uh, of a few, there, there was a few people. Um, but Cecil Rhodes was a, a fanatic devotee of empire. Um, he was assigned a job, kind of like George Soros was, to uh, be the person with, with startup capital from Victor Rothschild and the Rothschild banks, uh, to take control, first of, of a big chunk of southern Africa, an area known as Rhodesia was founded by him, he became prime minister of South Africa, of Cape Colony. And um, suppress the potential alliance of Zulus and Dutch Dutch Republicans around the Transvaal uh, Republic area, uh, which he did do, um, along with a certain little grouping of young Oxford-trained sociopathic uh, freaks um, under the form of Milner's Kindergarten, who worked very closely with Lord Kitchener. And they, this is the origins of the modern concentration camp system. Was declare, you know, basically de- declare war not on the the militia fighters who were doing a very good job kicking the ass of, of the British, but rather declare war on the, the the family members, the children, and the women, of you're which there about were like the, thirty thousand.
1: You're talking hmm? about the Boers,
0: yeah, and the Boers, exactly. And hmm. so Milner's kindergarten were the the conscience free Oxford trained little freaks who, under Lord Milner, who uh, carried out a lot of this evil. And they were the ones assigned to be the controllers of a new secret society that would that would have both the funding from Cecil Rhodes' fortunes that set up things like De Beers, even today some of the biggest um, diamond and mineral mines of uh, that are raping Africa um, were started by Cecil Rhodes. So he had a lot of money. And so the Rhodes Trust overseen by George Parkin was set up to uh, fund a series of international think tanks with branches... Round, called the Round Table, branches in South Africa, London, the U.S. had a certain, uh, a different name for it under the Pilgrim Society. In Canada, it was the Canadian, Australian, New Zealand Round Table movements to try to coordinate a, a reconstruction or, or of the the British Empire, an undoing of this danger of the spread of Lincoln's American system around the world, which was also going into China very heavily with the uh, emergent New Republican Revolution under Sun, Sun Yat Sen. The first president of china who studied in america under lincoln networks who had trained him to understand british grand strategy and he brought his revolution um in the form of a role model or he he modeled his new system off of lincoln's nation for by and of the people which he wrote a whole book on called the three principles of the people and um so every part of the world was that, that had to be that genie had to be put put down, put back in the bottle. That had to be destroyed through assassinations, coups. Russian, the Russian case where you had a very strong Lincoln American system movement under uh, Sergei Vita, the transport minister, um, was disrupted by several proto-color revolutions in the form of the the Wall Street London funded Bolshevik revolution first in 1905 and then in 1917. This is again funded by major wall street players who had just bankrolled the creation of the federal reserve as part of the takeover of the u.s establishment from within under a racist eugenics loving ideologue who later on gave birth or was assigned to be the person that, uh, who gave birth to the league of nations uh, woodrow wilson who was just sort of like a biden idiot demented throwaway character but he was he was handled by the <clears throat> the american branch of the roundtable movement people like walter Lippmann was a major controller of, and, and author of the, the Wilsonian doctrine and the, the 14 points doctrine at the League of Nations, or at the Versailles uh, Treaty that gave birth to the League of Nations. Uh, this, is al- this is also what gave birth in 1919 after World War, World War I, because not only did they do color revolutions to destabilize governments you don't like, um, including the Ottoman Empire is what gave what sucked in Russia into the Balkan Wars was this operation and undermine the uh, the danger of the Berlin to Baghdad railway being organized to modernize modernize the Ottoman Empire. Um, this is all destabilized in the heartland. Mackinder was himself, Halford Mackinder was a part of this operation who worked very closely with Milner and with the, the Fabian Society of eugenicists at the same time. And both the Fabian Society and, uh, and Milner Rhodes Group were, were both enmeshed, two sides of the same operation. One was centered in the London School of Economics, the other one was cent- centered in in Oxford, and the other branch of the um, the Rhodes Trust, on top of organizing these these um, think tanks, was to then breed a new generation, a new a new breed of um, of religious like zealots of empire under the form of a of a scholarship program that became the Rhodes Scholarship. And up until today, about 8,000 Americans have been indoctrinated with these special scholarships in the halls of Oxford and have been redeployed back to infiltrate and take control of their the, the, the part of the world that they, were, that they came from, whether it's America, Canada, South Africa. And increasingly, this spread to darker skinned countries as well, India, who were allowed to get brainwashed as well. At first, it was only for whites. But they, they were more open-minded about their brainwashing. And so, one of the things that was set up in America was called the Council on Foreign Relations. It was originally formulated at the same time as Chatham House was the British. So, at the at the at the Versailles Peace Conference, these um, what are called the Pilgrims, or the they also had a secondary think tank called the um, the Inquiry. It was another think tank set up by the these. J.P. Morgan, Rockefeller funded uh, essentially British American, British loyalists with American garb. Um, they, they created this think tank that was a big player at the U.S. State Department that in- infiltrated the State Department under Wilson, first under Teddy Wilson, but then really under, uh, sorry, Teddy Roosevelt and then under Wilson. And 28 delegates from the inquiry, including Walter Littman, were brought into the Versailles um, Treaty discussions. Which again, World War I was a complete artificial war of empire. It, there's no good reason why World War I happened. It happened to destroy specifically the, the, the American system allies in Germany, um, who were part of what was then known as the Friedrich List Society, who were very much closely allied with Russian counterparts that also had to be destroyed. So after the war, the idea was: okay, let's 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 create a one-world government as the solution to the problem of war that traumatized shock therapy so many people. And uh, we'll say that nation states ca- cause wars by their nature. And if we could just get rid of nation states, we won't have wars. So the Wilson Network of the Inquiry, the pilgrims were brought in. And at, at one of these events, um, they had a meeting at the Hotel Majestic in France where Leo Amory, one of the, the key figures who cut his teeth killing, killing innocents in South Africa under uh, as part of the Milner group, um, was then overseeing a meeting that created Chatham House, the otherwise known as the Royal Institute for International Affairs. And the American branch was also set up by Litman and others. That It took a couple of years to have an American uh, Institute for International Affairs, but they had to give it another name because a lot of Americans were smarter than the current batch of Americans and realized that uh, there was a British infiltration. So they, they chose to instead call it the Council on Foreign Relations, overseen by again Elihu Root a, a major anglophile uh, Walter Lippmann again major figure worked with e- Edward Bernays throughout the 20th century early part of the 20th century um, were all parts of this thing the the liberal intelligentsia you know who wanted to basically undo the American revolution from within and fortunately it the the, the patriots were able to organize themselves adequately to bring in a Lincoln Republican, the last Lincoln Republican, um, in the form of Warren G. Harding in 1920, who, who won on an anti-League of Nations, anti-world government ticket and became president and, and began to immediately disrupt all of the... Um, he basically was saying, no, we're not gonna go through the League of Nations to make a treaty with Hungary or Austria or Germany or Russia or China. He went and did all of those things bilaterally, the way a sovereign nation state has the right to do. And he refused to give up the u.s military to the article 10 or article 16 of the league of nations covenant that called for a collective security compact basically this is what was revamped with article 5 of nato after world war ii in 1949 so the point being is that great reset agenda was run by a bunch of eugenicists who effectively were proto-transhumanists because transhumanism is really just the repackaging of eugenics um, as part of a governing religious order of world government for a technocratic elite managing the, the world above nation states. And this was disrupted by China and India in 2009 as the last major time this was fully disrupted from within. And the, and the first time, setting the bookends, was really 1920 to 23 mm. when the American delegations all basically sabotaged it from within. Warren Harding dies, unfortunately, a little bit too soon, Oyster, right? Like I mentioned, oysters, oyster poisoning, no autopsy, total bre- breach of protocol. And, uh, you know, the JP Morgan, Mellon, Andrew Mellon, Carnegie Networks take back control. Rockefeller interests are taking back control in the 1920s, undoing all of the protectionism that Warren Harding had set into motion and creating condition for a new Great Depression, which is triggered in 1929. But
1: what was going on now in China at the same time?
0: At the same time, you had Sun Yat-sen who was forced to step down. So he was the first president. But due to certain Anglo intrigues, um, he couldn't get the support of a lot of the warlords and, and was told, I mean, he maybe didn't have to do this, maybe he was naive. But he was basically told that the only way he would get Western support would be if he give give the, the presidency over to one of the key warlords, which he did in 1913 or 1912 who basically uh, worked to carve up China again as a new emperor and undo the successes of the Republican revolution. And keep in mind, Sun Yat-sen is himself a Christian Confucianist. He recognized there was no difference in principle between those two worldviews, because in Confucianism, there is a principle of agopic love under under the form of ren, under the form of li. You've got an idea of a principle of harmony of um, of law of lawfulness caused by the heavens and the the creator of the heavens. You have an idea of of tianming, the idea of the the natural law in the Western lexicon was tianming, the the idea of the the as above the harmony of, of uh, the heavens having to be expressed by human human society. So Sun Yat-sen lost his uh, political um seat as president and was running sort of um was organizing a back channel fight to remobilize the best forces of china to recognize how they were being manipulated by, by british intrigue which you can read in the vital problem of china 1917 or his international development of china in 1920 he outlines very clearly the hand of british intelligence in managing and manipulating the carving up of china um, unfortunately, he's not heated in his lifetime. And the Kuomintang party that he creates um, falls under the control of Chiang Kai-shek, who he probably thought was going to be a better man. And Chiang Kai-shek, unfortunately, is a very little man who sees himself as a bit of a, a, a wannabe fascist strongman and is very happy to work with the warlords and against the interests of the Chinese people by and large. And Sun Yat-sen back in 1925 he dies at that moment as well um, but he's openly warning that look the the global the 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 new youth being trained in by Bertrand Russell by the uh, the the Dewey uh, John Jew, John Dewey the the western liberalizing educator is also on the ground in China with Bertrand Russell uh, training a new generation of young uh, young people uh, to become cosmopolitan, to to not believe in the nation state, and Sun Yat-sen is is giving grave warnings that this is corrupting the people from within and creating the seeds of, of China's own internal destruction. You can read his his letters; they're very strong. There's again two chapters in in our new book on uh, uh, volume two: the birth of uh, open versus closed systems collide, where we go through some of this, as well as as breaking free of anti-China psyops. So China is now being set up um, for a variety of things. But World War II, the moment the League of Nations becomes clear that it's going to fail, the momentum is now set up by, Brit- by British intelligence to, do, to use the, the, the Japanese card. Because Japan was still under the sway, just like they were in 1905 when they, or 1904 when they declared war against Russia um, and destroyed 75% of the Russian naval fleet. That was under British direction using b- warships uh, p- created by Britain, funded by Britain. Um, and uh, as well, people like Jacob Schiff was awarded a medal of honor by the the, the Japanese emperor for having given a $20 million gift to uh, Japan for carrying out the war against Russia. Um, so all that to say, the Japanese card was being played once more, this time to you know subdue a weakened China, which had a lot of infighting. The, the Kuomintang were more inclined to work with the warlords. Uh, the Communist Party was just emerging as more of a party for the people. And, and obviously, when you're dealing with a society, a system that unjust, the Communist Party got a lot of support because people could at least see that they didn't want to turn them into human cattle at the time and, and still wanted to protect them. And In fact, what we saw with the Japanese war against China that began way before World War II, really in the early 1930s, was that you had both a civil war going on over a, a power play of which faction was going to win Sun yat sen of course was organizing to create a harmonized win-win alliance of the communist and kuomintang but without his leadership there was a vacuum and incompetence and it was really really fertile for internal war um the japanese were then deployed again with the support of their their british handlers um, to carry out this war, of sub, to subdue China once more and bring them back under the opium war logic of the 19th century, get them back under the system of British controls. And um, <clears throat> for a small period, you had um, an alliance between Mao and, and Chiang Kai-shek, but a very small, very small period. Uh, but all, all that to say, that was going on. And at the same time, you had a second attempt for a one-world government in 1933 after four years of Great Depression had sufficiently shocked and traumatized the Europeans and Americans and Canadians and probably South Africa. I mean, everybody was was affected badly by the Great Depression. Um, then another attempt to create a League of Nations-run one-world government was brought online in L- the London Conference of 1933, June, which uh, brought together everybody under the Bank of England and the League of Nations to give up their sovereignty economically and and restore order under new, under a new banker's dictatorship. And just like in 2009, when China and India sabotaged the COP14, I keep on re-saying it because it's so important. This time it was it was America. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt had just been made president. He had just avoided his first assassination attempt in February of 1933, run by a Freemasonic anarchist named Giuseppe Zangara, who failed to assassinate Roosevelt and accidentally not accident but ended up killing uh, Mayor Cermak of Chicago. Roosevelt then goes and pulls out the American delegation and says you're not allowed to participate with the British, then being run by John Maynard Keynes, representing the British global interests, um, and basically sabotaged, torpedoed the London conference. And when that conference was torpedoed, then I think the decision was made by British high command that they have to go for a full-blown, hard fascist battering ram instead, that that nations wouldn't willingly, without without another war, Give up their sovereignty the the way that they were expected, and accept a one world government under a transhumanist elite. So that's where they started putting more and more of their resources into Japanese fascists, really going full hog, who were again very receptive to Rockefeller sponsored eugenics, which is what they did to the, the Chinese and uh, population in controlled um, experiments on human beings to see how you can best kill the useless eaters. The same way the Germans were doing, the same way thirty American states. Were doing before 1933 in, in sterilization laws and, and killing off of the unfit um so the idea was go hard double down on the fascist you know policy and the thing that the british elite especially around the round table group didn't really like about this is that it involved a need to use a form of nationalism national socialism so that that type of italian spanish german japanese fascism that they needed to use as their battering rams to break the world again was under a too much of a nationalist veneer which is always annoying for a globalist because you're like it's hard to put that genie back in the bottle um but they saw it as like a, a a necessary means towards the end of global world government so that that's what was was done as the fascists in america you know walt roosevelt wasn't he's another slandered person the, the, just like china slandered today so is roosevelt slandered in america because frankly and just the stalin also is slandered um as well because the the chinese both t- today and then as well as the the russians both today and then in world war ii and the americans then not today um under roosevelt were the cause of why the wall street london hitler project failed it was because of these collaborators who broke the New World Order script. And that's why th- there's been so much work over 80 years to rewire the narratives of what was Stalin, what was Roosevelt, what was Mao, what was, what was China, to get us to um, not see that the real hand is this inbred oligarchical elite that have always been trying to restore global feudalism, even before there was communism, they were still doing it. So that's the core of the fight. So Roosevelt, he, he had a vision for a, a pro-Russia-China-U.S. world order that would shape the rules of the game after World War II. Multipolar. It was a multipolar alliance. It was the internationalization of the successful principles of the New Deal, which w- successfully broke the back of the Federal Reserve and Wall Street complex in world, in, in the 1930s. It, there was a, the, the New Deal Deal did not happen because of Wall Street. It happened in spite of them. And there was a war that people are not told about in school between Roosevelt and the nationalists who had formerly been supporting Warren Harding, who went to war to break up the Wall Street banks, sent hundreds of major bankers in prison through the Pacora commissions. Um, the creation of protectionism to favor the growth of local agro-industrial enterprises in America itself, to rebuild and reheal from the destruction self-induced by the Great Depression which itself was induced by the fake bubbles of the Roaring Twenties, done by Andrew Mellon and other uh, Rothschild-affiliated bankers in America, tied to the CFR under Coolidge. So all of this was this was a battle. There's a drama that we're not told about, and this is why Smedley Butler was deployed as a U.S. general to kill Roosevelt and bring in himself, as he describes it, right to the cameras. And people can Google Smedley Butler. On YouTube, even and listen to this man, this courageous general, blow the whistle on this JP Morgan-directed coup d'etat to create a fascist police state in America under his command and run um as part of a pro-Nazi alliance with Italy and, and Germany and other countries. That was part of the, mm. the carving up of the world under the um that roundtable agenda. And it was a roundtable agenda because the leading roundtablers, like um Lloyd George, who was, you know. The prime minister during World War One, who set up the uh, the League of Nations on the British side, Lloyd George was wor- a tabler working with with Jan Smuts in South Africa, working with Lord Milner, who was his uh, the, the head of the the global minister of the colonies. Um, he was a- openly calling for a British alliance with um, Ger- Nazi Germany, along with the Nazi King Edward the Eighth, uh, Seven, uh, Edward the Eighth who was the openly Nazi king teaching Queen Elizabeth the Nazi salute. You know, they were, they were, uh, Oswald Mosley was a part of that network and Lloyd George nearly became prime minister again instead of Churchill. Neville Chamberlain was also part of the pro-Nazi apparatus and these American fascists who were trying to keep America out of World War II throughout the 1930s and into the 1940s under the American Liberty League were all the same fascist-sponsored John Pierpont Morgan, Thomas Lamont networks of the pro-fascist, pro-eugenics, Harriman-Nazi machine. that were, tra- And so we're told, oh yeah, Roosevelt was a bad guy because he got the U.S. into World War II. And it's like, would, would the world have been better if the U.S. did not enter World War II and Hitler won? Would that have made a better world order of a Nazi-run, you know, eugenics religion under the, the Thule Society of Occultism? No, it wouldn't have made a better world order. And Roosevelt n- nearly got killed twice by these creeps.
1: But just to jump in there and not to derail the conversation but there's a small segue that i just want to ask about hitler wasn't a globalist
0: he was a communalist he wanted he was somebody who was a big fan of the idea that the industrial development of the military might of germany was just a, a necessary evil means towards a just end so he didn't want in his writings he is a uh a fan of the idea that nature and human industrial activity are incompatible. And once successful, the idea was to then create a world of highly decentralized communalist systems around the world overseen by a supranational elite of unelected bureaucrats. Of course, it would have been under his um, um, him and his generals would have been, you know, people like Mengele, like uh, not Mengele, sorry, like uh, like Hermann Goering. Um, would have been part of the high command above the uh, he wasn't into elected representation right he wasn't that wasn't his way of governing affairs but he he wanted to go back to the the program agreed upon by the roundtable group and the city of london and him back in the early 30s when prescott bush was giving him you know hundreds of millions of dollars on behalf of brown brothers harriman to keep the nazi party from going bankrupt in 1932 he wanted to go back to the original agenda which was germany controls the heartland you know they control russia as a depopulated slave colony that's that's what germany would control in the former what became the soviet bloc areas would be under the under nazi command britain would control their sphere of influence with control of uh, india which hitler really wanted the british to control india a big chunk of black africa um japan would control you know China, Korea, Manchuria, Laos, Cambodia, like all of the regions of, of the yellow part of the world would be controlled by the Japanese fascists. The Americans would, the Anglo-Americans would control North America, big chunks of South America, as would Franco. He'd have his, his cut of the pie in Spain. And, and so would Italy. Um, Mussolini would have a big chunk of Africa as, as another slave colony. So China, Africa, the Middle East, as we know it, and uh, like the Persian Gulf area and Russia, would be geographical regions of slave depopulated slave colonies, under their control, and that would be sort of the the way the world order would be carved up, but always under the control of a master class of superhumans, ubermensch, and that that's another religious belief of Hitler and part of the Thule Society. You know, part of it was a, 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 a black magic occult factor too of its own secret society. Because people say, oh yeah, Hitler was against Freemasonry and. It's like, eh, you well, know, he was into his own secret societies that were still doing sacrifice, like human sacrifice, you know, um, and bringing back Aryan myths. You know, it, it, was, it was just different variants of the exact same beast. But ultimately, yeah, he did openly extol the idea of, um, he supported the ideas of Malthus, Hitler. He openly thought that Malthus was. A, a guru of population science he and th- i've got quotes of hitler <laughs> directly talking about his love of Malthus, his belief in Malthus, which is also why he believed in eugenics which is also why he believed in nietzsche so much too um and um he also was a, a fan of the idea like i said of communalism of, of breaking down society into these tiny little back to nature uh communal groups of think local everywhere but mm. people would then blind with their local mini you know domestic zones of of influence that they couldn't see the whole that they're part of and thus they would be more easy to manage as a as a divided world of many many points of control so yeah but but hitler but hitler just to make one last point he mm. broke from his, his his script right because at a certain point when he he listened to his generals and uh you know he basically realized well with this massive military power that's been built up with the help of the bank of england and Montague Norman. And these Wall Street financiers who helped him the whole time building this thing up. He's like, Well, why do I have to be the junior partner in the New World Order? Why don't I why can't I be the senior partner and why can't Britain be my junior partner? You know, and, and he and he said, Well, rather than just attack Russia directly, why don't I secure my southern flank first? Mm. Which you know, he started doing first in Poland, then in France, and and then with that secure, then go north with our, Operation Barbarossa with the help of some Nazi you know nazis in finland and, and sweden who uh, uh so anyway but but all that to say he broke from his sort of reservation in some ways and he gave britain like eight different escape attempts where he could have smothered and destroyed britain during world war ii he chose not to because he wanted to work again with the the proper nazi britain that he believed in <laughs> as as co-anglo-saxon brethren of the global super state he wanted the the nazi king to come back into power king edward the, the eighth who promised the whole time i'll be your nazi king you know keep on on bombing britain and they'll break at some point i promise is what that king was writing in open letters that are now public to hitler saying as soon as you do that i'll be your guy once more uh you know so hitler yeah he he broke from from his programming but at the same time he was still uh, what he was
1: but now bring me back now to china
0: well here's where i think it's useful um to jump ahead a few years, because, I mean, <clears throat> you know, you have, in the case of, of, um, after world, so world war two is now over. Roosevelt doesn't live to see the end, the end of the war, right? Roosevelt has with Henry Wallace, his vice president, an open policy to create a new type of, of society or a new type of global system of rules premised around the, what became the United nations charter. This is, like I said, very different from the League of Nations. People say, oh, because, because it came after the League of Nations, this was just a rebranding. It was not a rebranding because the League of Nations was against the nation-state system in practice and in principle, whereas the League of Na- the United Nations, under Roosevelt's concept, was it enshrined in, the, in Articles 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, it enshrines the, the sacredness of the sovereignty of nations, it enshrines a UN Security Council that gives full rights to Russia and China to directly veto anything being done by the Anglo, you know, the, the Western part of the establishment. Um, it illegalizes foreign wars for conquest. It, it only allows for defensive uh, actions. It does not allow for foreign wars, which is why they had to bring on later on uh, NATO to get around the the, the the UN Security Council and then the responsibility to protect later on as the liberal you know, humanitarian warfare of Tony Blair and, and uh, the Rhodes Scholars under, under Clinton. They had to get around that because they, the, the UN is a mixed bag. And it, yes, it got infiltrated and it got corrupted and it got taken over, but even now it's still problematic for those who want to get rid of nation states. And that's why Russia and China today always say, we have to respect not the rules-based international order, but the UN Charter. They understand exactly what I'm saying here that the, the, the rules-based order is the League of Nations NATO order, the UN Charter premises a respect for all nations. And very different idea. Unfortunately, like I said, two weeks before the San Francisco conference that sets up the um, the UN, Roosevelt is dead. No autopsy, just like Warren Harding. And his key allies are purged from US intelligence. The OSS is soon dismantled. And creatures who are um, working with Jan Smuts, like Count Richard uh, Kudenhove Kalergi, the pan-Europa uh, fascist ideologue, who creates the, the foundation for the European Union, in fact, designs the actual um, flag of the European Union and um, what became, unfortunately, the anthem, a misuse of Beethoven's fourth, uh, Ninth Symphony. That, that Kalergi is now deployed. He's in the United States working with Alan Dulles, um, John Foster Dulles, the entire uh, Council on Foreign Relations Roundtable Movement in America formulating the UN Charter and introducing things like Article 52, 53, 54, which allow for the creation of regional blocks that justifies later on the growth of the EU, that justifies the growth of NATO. And the Wallace Roosevelt idea of a Russia-China-US alliance is sabotaged. And you got to keep in mind, it would have been a very different world order if you had had that, because it would have forced like Britain to c- go along by, by on a leash. To new rules set by real, authentic nations that had just put down Hitler, and had like the 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 Chinese delegation at Bretton Woods were represented were representing the interests of both Mao and the Kuomintang, as well as the indian the Indian delegations were at Bretton Woods, the Russians, the South America South Americans everywhere, African delegations were all presenting different ideas and and outlines on how to bring about the New Deal programs of water projects, electrification. Uh, all of these big projects that were done in America to great success with a principle of national banking through the Reconstruction Finance Corporation that bypassed the Federal Reserve. And they were all presenting these ideas, like Sun Yat-sen's international development strategy for China was being presented and accepted by the American delegation. It was presented by the Chinese. And both the, the, the Mao and Chiang kai delegations both agreed on that. That would have resulted in a very different world of cooperation, win-win development, and national banking for all with a World Bank and an IMF at the time that were supposed to behave very differently from what they became, which is that they were infiltrated by the city of London and Wall Street to become tools of of reconquest under usurious conditionalities. But that wasn't their original design. It was gonna be something different. So it had to that 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 sabotage had to occur over the dead bodies of many people, like Harry Dexter White, the first U.S. director of the IMF, died under very mysterious circumstances in 1948, and that bank was infiltrated. So was the World Bank. Roosevelt dies. Henry Wallace is ousted, purged. I mean, there's a big list, and, and I go through chapters of this in my book. In China, similar issue, you know, with the lack of any type of system of gl- without eliminating the system of global empire, the, the world is ripe now for chaos. And this is what happens. There's an effort being made by some of the, the best people around uh, Mao in the form of Zhou Enlai, the premier, a very close ally of Mao, who works with his Indian counterparts Jawaharlal Nehru and African leaders in, in Indonesia, um, at what's called the Bandung Conference in 1954, where what is laid out is an attempt to revive Roosevelt's vision under the, the five principle Five principles of peaceful coexistence, respecting nation states, basing your foreign policy on the, the well-being of your neighbors. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful document, but unfortunately, once once again, you know, the US is, is being taken over by a newly formed CIA. The Anglo-American Special Relationship is set up that, that also pulls the US into defending the British Empire assets abroad, starting with Greece, putting down the the. <laughs> The Republican government of Greece in favor of a, of a fascist Greek state supported by the CIA um, brought in with the U.S. military's assistance, and then they go into Korea, right? Then they then you get a little belligerence on the Taiwan Straits where Taiwan becomes used increasingly after Chiang Kai-shek is expelled. He sets up his new base of operations in Taiwan supported by the U.S. military industrial complex. To Korea, a, a, a proto-Vietnam War is also uh, created to just... Suck the U.S. into a new wage of a new age of forever wars, and the U.S. proceeds to literally overthrow about 200 governments in the ensuing 78 years, killing m- immense numbers of nationalist, patriotic, moral leaders around the world under the the new integrated CIA, Air Force, intelligence, uh, and MI6 uh, program under what became the Five Eyes. That's the culmination of Roosevelt's vision. Uh, sorry. Of Cecil Rhodes' outline for a reconquered United States brought back into the fold of a newly reconstituted British Empire, it's the Five Eyes. That's what it is under the under the GCHQ controlling the NSA. Um, so all of this is now coming back into force. And the Nazis that were never punished in Nuremberg are all integrated into U.S. and British intelligence. Stefan Bandera, Mikola Lebed, uh, Reinhard Galen, the head of Hitler's intelligence are brought in to take control of West German intelligence. Operation Gladio, you know, NATO's NATO's secret armies become the basis of all of these different high-level killers from from Japan, German, uh, Italian fascists are all now integrated into NATO. (laughs) That's the thing. That's our history. They rewrite our our textbooks. They rewrite our history. They take control in different ways in the United States under McCarthyism and the Cold War. Um, they create the basis of the Austrian School of Economics. This is why the Austrian School has with American conservatives. How the hell were American conservatives convinced over the course of 80 years that to be a proper American patriot, you have to be a disciple of the Austrian School? What the hell is the Austrian School? It's the school of the Habsburg Empire, a satanic empire with ideologues who promoted a revamped Adam Smith, who, by the way, was not American either. Adam Smith was an ideologue for the British East India Company, right? And they said to be a proper American to fight the Soviets is to be a libertarian, you know, devotee of pure free markets. I mean, that was so un-American, yet it worked because it was the same fascists of the American Liberty League of J.P. Morgan who were trying to kill Roosevelt, who were trying to keep the U.S. out of the war so that the, the fascists would win, who were the same ones who then supported the growth of these new think tanks like the Heritage Foundation, the John Birch Society, all of these things that uh, went on to traumatize and psychologically shape several generations of Americans and Canadians and pretty much everybody under the five eyes. And China was like a very weakened country, right? They were not very industrially developed. The average life expectancy in 1945, uh, sorry, nineteen. 61 was about 45 years of age on average, very high infant mortality. Um, Russia was still quite weak because they, they, they didn't recover quickly after World War II's destruction, right? 25 million Russians died, 10 million Chinese died. Um, so you had efforts made to try to um, heal, to get industrial activity, but it was slow and it, they were again they were very weak they didn't have the level of of money and sophistication of anglo-american global intelligence uh, agencies that could run fifth columnists everywhere in the world but to this day if people say that oh yeah russia and china were the big villains of world war of of the cold war how make a list of how many governments and how many leaders and heads of state were overthrown by coups run by the chinese intelligence or russian intelligence make a list and compare it to the list of the united states and britain just do it as a practice it's a fun exercise. There's not very much you'll get on the uh, the Russia-China side, and in fact, you know, the, by the time Mao had a bit of a god complex, he, he that was a big problem. And I think there's a story there I, d- I don't fully understand. I think it has a lot to do with Anna Strong, though, the, the aunt of uh, Maurice Strong, who was a trusted um, um, figure close to Mao, who uh, encouraged him always to give support to the Gang of Four. And so the worst thing that I think can be said about China in the modern age is the cultural revolution. That's something that traumatized a lot of Chinese. It's often used to try to paint today's China as if it's still the same 1967 China that was, you know, doing the cultural revolution. And um, I think that that was, I got a lot of big problems with the cultural revolution. I think that was bad. I think it was really bad. And uh, the idea of, you know, scrapping Confucianism, destroying Buddhist and Chinese uh Taoist and, and Confucian temples and literature, as far as wiping wiping history clean of the four olds, that was bad. And people died unnecessarily. The thing was, Mao was at that point fully under the persuasion of the, the gang of four, his wife and three other ideologues who managed that entire scheme. And it lasted for about eight, eight to 10 years. When Kissinger goes to China in 1972 and he says all of these great things about China and, and envisions his new his new plan on behalf of David Rockefeller and the trilateral commission right that involves opening up China. That's what he's thinking about. He's looking at that part of China and saying we can work with this. We can make this our forever slave colony where they will produce sweatshops. We will have now finally a monetarist excuse to deindustrialize the former, you know, manufacturing base of the west. As part of a nation stripping agenda, that's what Kissinger oversaw with the whole tri- trilateral commission, and they will be the producers. They will stay poor. They will have, you know, the Shanghai clique of billionaires or the Guangdong clique of billionaires that, that have always been under the influence of the British Empire. They will be the local controllers of the new system, right? And the sweatshops on the coast will produce cheap crap that they won't be able to buy themselves using cheap slave labor, effectively, you know. A, 25 cents a day. And they will then service and produce the things that we used to produce ourselves. And that way everybody will become dependent upon the middlemen above nation states managed managed through these new agencies like the World Economic Forum that Kissinger's disciple Klaus Schwab was assigned to bring online in 1971. The Trilateral Commission was being brought online at that exact same moment the coup in the United States that severed the US dollar from the gold reserve and fixed exchange rate system that was also done under Kissinger and George Shultz same time and uh, you know the Rothschild Interalpha Bank Group was set up in 1971 the same month as the World Economic Forum in order to consolidate controls of a new system of global supranational corporate finance above nations and so the slave society of China would be the forever model in China in, in Kissinger's world now the thing is Mao dies and the gang of four loses their protector the moment Mao dies the Zhou Enlai networks, who are then um, represented by the figure of Deng Xiaoping, end up taking control. There's a fight. There's a power struggle. But the Gang of Four, these I, I have no respect for them, and I'm happy that they ended up getting put immediately in jail, all of them. Mao's wife committed suicide in jail as protest. But I mean, they're taken out. And then you have two different factions. You have a, a, you have a traitorous fifth column network of, of Malthusians. Who are still loyal to the gang of four agenda inside of the chinese governance but they don't have their their leaders anymore and you have the the zhou online networks who had formally organized the bandung conference in the 1955 that i mentioned that got sabotaged they're now brought, brought back into play and they're thinking on a much more future oriented level thinking okay on a practical level they can benefit by accessing u.s industrial production and reverse engineering that they have to do because the life expectancy is like barely 48 years of age at that point it's crap so they have poverty that they have to undo mass poverty it's a third world country so they but they're thinking to the way uh uh deng Xiaoping outlines in what was known as the four modernizations the idea that there's four categories categories of technological development from aerospace military civilian electricity um that he outlines very clearly have to be at the part of a multi-phase growth to bring independence to China. And part of that would be to bend the knee and be the cheap market exporter for a period, but with the idea that when the strength was, when the muscles were built up to begin to break free and ideally with the alliance of Russia and other countries that would um, also hopefully regain strength at a right moment in the future. So it was a gamble. But that's, you know, that was the fight throughout the 1980s. George Soros had a field day in the 1980s. This is what today's oligarchy wants to bring China back to is like 1985, 86 China, which was like the best party time for the CIA. And Soros had his own um, stooge who was made first premier and then chairman of the Chinese Communist Party. Zhao Jiang, who co-ran a think tank with George Soros in the 1980s, who brought in the transhumanists. They brought in Milton Friedman into Beijing. They brought in Alvin Toffler. Uh, they were speaking about bringing China into the fourth industrial revolution. They brought in David Rockefeller, where the Trilateral Commission had meetings in Beijing in 1983 to uh, to keep that that idea of the slave colony economic model, you know, applied. So. Why, why did China kick out George Soros? That's a big thing that a lot of people today have to, like a lot of conservatives who know that George Soros' apparatus runs, the United States runs much of, of the Five Eyes, they, they should chew on the paradox. How and why did, did China kick out and banish George Soros in 1989? How did China do it and what was the consequence of that happening? Why did that happen? These are questions that they just ignore. They don't know it, and because they don't think about the paradox, they easily fall into this, yeah, George Soros is a tool of China because he said something nice about China in, like, 20, 2011 or something. You know, it, it's, that, it's that low low quality. They don't see the nuance. They don't see the paradox. So
1: Now we're sitting with a situation where China is still the enemy of the West and it wants to invade Taiwan and pretty much... Everybody must be anti-China.
0: Yes, well, that's that's the, uh, yeah, that's that's the lobotomy, uh, the lobotomized narrative that has been thrown at us. Um, And it only works if you don't know anything about this history and about how this game is played that you will fall for this. But I mean, the fact that one can discover very easily is that Taiwan has always been a US military industrial complex colony throughout the entirety of the Cold War. And this is now being set up as the leaders of the Kuomintang themselves have openly said. There are several leading figures representing Sun Yat-sen's Kuomintang, which you know was the, the, the party of Chiang Kai-shek that left and set up uh, Taiwan back in, the ni- in 1949. They have openly said that they are being used as Ukraine of the Pacific, as cannon fodder in a proxy war that's being set up by the US military industrial complex. And it's because of this sanity amongst a big chunk of the Taiwanese and their political representatives that you had things like the, uh, the CIA National Endowment for Democracy funded color revolution that hit Taiwan under the Sunflower Movement back in 2014, the same year that the NED and the State Department of the US were funding the Maidan, the, over, the coup d'etat that ousted a pro-Russian government of Yanukovych in, in Ukraine that it wasn't just Ukraine, the same resources were being put into overthrowing the Kuomintang government under this people's, you know, this, this, this color revolution effectively were useful idiot young people being paid by Soros front groups and the NED were storming the, the Taiwanese parliament building demanding, what were they demanding? No economic agreements with mainland China. Same thing that was being done by the the idiot Ukrainian useful idiot uh, tools who stormed and, and burnt you know <laughs> burnt the U- Ukrainian government buildings in order to block the Ukraine economic agreement with Russia at the same time and these same groups who are now um, led by by Western trained idiots um, in today as you know Tsai Ing Wen the, the current president of, of Taiwan. They're calling for integrating Taiwan as a colony of, of the U.S. military, effectively. They're, they're, they're saying that Taiwan needs the, the protection of the U.S., that they need to host U.S. military bases, and, and um, they're the ones bypassing the mainland China, which to this very day, for people who say that Taiwan is its own country, only 13 countries in the world acknowledge Taiwan as its own country, of the Vatican and 13 other, other, 12 other tiny countries acknowledge Taiwan as its own thing. Even the U.S. State Department itself on its official website recognizes Taiwan as part of mainland China, as an autonomous province. So it, to, to inflame separatist movements there, as we have, we're have we seeing from both sides of the political aisle, from the Democrats of Nancy Pelosi, who went there saber-rattling you know, and, and encouraging separatist factions in Taiwan not that long ago, or Kevin McCarthy representing the idiot Republicans... Um, or Lindsey Graham saying we have to be prepared to go to war with China by 2025 over Taiwan, or Biden who said the same thing. Um, it's it's not a left versus right issue. They're using Taiwan just like they were using Ukra- they have been using Ukraine. They also want to do the same thing with Japan as the other the other Ukraine of the Pacific with unresolved pro-Nazi mythologies that have unfortunately still brainwashed a big chunk of the Japanese intelligentsia who think that the Nazis were the good guys in World War World War II. And uh, they, they never, you know, they're still at war with Russia. The Japanese are still at war with Russia. They never signed a peace deal. So, you know, the fact that you have 50,000 U.S. military troops stationed in Japan, running war games, military exercises that have changed the Japanese constitution to allow for, for the first time, aggressive wars in defense of your allies, of which now are defined for Jap- Japan, Taiwan, and, and the U.S. or Australia, um, that's absurd. They're setting the groundwork for a new war. Um, because China's just not going along with this depopulation agenda, as we first started seeing in real force back in 2009, when China sabotaged the World Government Conference in Copenhagen for the first time. And they're doing it again with the help of Russia, who they've in- integrated with, and Iran, um, and many other countries, bring a different idea of development that is anti-Malthusian, a rejection of depopulation, onto the scene. Um, which is not supposed to happen. This was never supposed to be part of the permitted New World Order script that was being celebrated back in 1992, you know, when uh, Russia was being taken over by uh, the neo-Trotskyite Soros fanatics and and, uh, and CIA under the Rhodes Scholarship of, of the Rhodes Scholars of, of Strobe Talbot and Bill Clinton, who were, and, and Susan Rice and, and uh, Bruce Reed, other Rhodes, these are all Rhodes Scholars who all were brought online to bring about this world government agenda who are there today under Biden. If you really want to know, if people want to know the enemies of America that have been behind this multi-generational conspiracy to infiltrate the US and destroy it from within, look at these Rhodes Scholars running the Biden administration of which there are many, many. Jake Sullivan, Rhodes Scholar, right? Mm. Uh, it's, it's a big list. And people just are not paying proper attention to this thing or how it interfaces with the Soros op, uh, operation. It's the same thing.
1: What's so funny, though, is when people talk about China wanting to drive eugenics, just look at China's population.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, here's actually, that's a good one, because people will often say, well, look, they, they have the one China policy. That's population control. And it's like, yeah, that was terrible. Admittedly, that right behind the Cultural Revolution, the Chinese have admitted themselves that that was a disastrous policy, both of those two things. Now, the difference between them and us is that they let go of it. They they got rid of the one-child policy for the Han Chinese back in 2015. They raised it to two. Now it's at three. And very soon, it will be no limits whatsoever because they realize they, they screwed up. They have a demographic crisis. It's true. They have way too many old people, not enough young people to, just like we do, similar. The difference being is their trajectory is actually for, towards recovery. They're creating a climate of cultural optimism and genuine growth, leaping beyond the limits to growth, making new discoveries, applying them for in the form of new and better technologies uh, that allow for the sustaining of more people at a higher quality of life. And you could everything I'm saying, not a single thing, is hyperbole. You could take any of this the useful statistics of um, that anyone would look at, and you can measure. The, the rates of change compare it between the United States and the transatlantic, and compare it to China. And you could look at infant mortality, the average life expectancy, which has only increased up to eighty point one years of age in China now. It went up from forty six years of age fifty years ago to eighty point one years of age um, in China. In the U.S., it's collapsed down to seventy six point seven years of age, uh, yeah seventy six point seven years of age on average in the United States. That's a, that's a two-year collapse that's even gotten worse with the, the whole pandemic crap. Per capita Infant mortality has decreased to the point of almost non-existence in, in China. It's, it's irrelevant. The suicide rate has decreased in China per capita. The rate of productivity has increased 15-fold in China over the past 20 years, whereas it has decreased over the same period by a similar magnitudes but the inverse. You have a middle class in China, in the year 1999, which was less than 3% of the overall population, today, it's 54%. At the current trajectory, by 2030, there will be no poverty in China. There's almost none as it stands. And the important thing about all of this is that if you look at what they've been doing and, and compare it to the difference in uh, how the, I, the the West has interfaced with Africa, South America, other poor countries that would have, were part of the empire for generations, they're actually... A, encouraging these countries to adopt their development growth model and leapfrog over um, new technologies in order to pull people out of poverty but provide mass education 20 to 50 year loans for some projects at very reasonable bases of, of slow repayment at low interest. And yeah, it you know, you could find a couple of examples here and there in, Af- in Angola where they have like 10,000 projects going in Africa. You know, Angola has like 800 Chinese... Bi- built projects, it's not all perfect. You could find a couple of case studies where things were done either sloppily, where things were done without, um, were done with uh, an an unjust uh, basis of repayment in in some cases. But that's such a fraction of a fraction, and that's all we're told when we listen to Epoch Times or we listen to the mainstream media. We're just shown a couple of horrific case stories, case studies, often out of context, often a lie, sometimes kind of true, but not usually. And we are led to ignore the other $4 trillion of massive infrastructure projects that are, that are tra- training 100,000 Africans every year in Chinese universities for free, giving them the highest quality skill sets to then go back and build big projects in Ethiopia, in Sudan, um, in Kenya, across the, across the continent, which is unlike anything. We have never permitted that under the Cecil Rhodes Doctrine for, for Africa, which has been nonstop for the past century and a half. We only give them loads of debt repayments and don't train. We, we don't create manufacturing or factories for the the Africans to do or benefit from the resources that they have under their soil, as Kissinger outlined in uh, in his NSSM two hundred. And the last thing on the on the population you know eugenics policy of China, it was brought in by the Club of Rome. It wasn't a Chinese one child policy in nineteen seventy nine. Sun. Um, uh, I'm forgetting his name all of a sudden, but the key Chinese scientist who brought in the uh, these these scary projections of population growth charts, studied in Finland under the Club of Rome that had brought in these things into the World Economic Forum in 1973 as the new tools for managing global population and resources that were that were funded by prince bernhard the same guy who who brought online the bilderberger group who created the world wildlife fund for nature with prince philip that same prince bernhard is the same guy who bankrolled the third world economic forum that brought in alexander king and aurelio Pichet, who are directly tied to the trilateral commission through the fiat company and the agnelli family which was a the, the heir to that family was a key figure of the Trilateral Commission as a member where they set up the Club of Rome in a David Rockefeller estate in 1968. And so this was brought into the World Economic Forum and this is what was then brought into China as a way to justify the idea that there's gonna be this population crisis in the year 2000 if they don't do something now, act now. And Kissinger made it very clear in his National Security Study Memorandum, 200 documents that were declassified in 1989 that were written in 1974 that unless Negative population growth can be enforced in these various countries of the world. Ethiopia, Mexico, were on the list. uh, Bangladesh, um, there's a a big list. China was high on his mind, though it's not Mm -hmm. literally in his NSSM. That was the first thing on his mind is China. If you can't do that, then these countries will start doing technological growth that will then involve educating their people, that will involve their people then using the resources that are under their soil which are actually in the strategic interest of the United States in the context of the Cold War. And so we cannot let any type of genuine growth policy ever occur anywhere in the world, which is what was done. I mean, his policy wasn't like some theoretician's academic treaties imagining, you know, from from some university what the world might be like. He was the Secretary of State. You know, he's the guy who actually transformed US foreign policy into that very thing. He was working with George Bush Sr., who, by the way, later on played a key role in the the soros operation in china so you know this whole chinese deep state there there are deep states in china but people have to look at the fact that this was mm-hmm. built up under zhao Jiang, the soros stooge and george bush senior and kissinger that's where it came from and that's what's been trying to work through shanghai to subvert and destroy china from within and china and russia has their own deep state too but it's mm-hmm. not it's not the chinese communist party They're, it's this other thing
1: Something that I constantly see is the argument that sort of gravitates around the debt trap diplomacy.
0: Yes. Yes, I see that too. That was, that's been really promoted by the Council on Foreign Relations um, big time. And uh, Brookings Institute as well, early on, were promoting this uh, idea of debt trap diplomacy. And all it is, there's a term that I think a lot of people probably have heard about called Freudian projection. The entire argument is based upon, on the one hand, keeping a blinder up to anything China is doing that is actually anti-Malthusian and built around eliminating poverty, of which over a billion people to this day have been pulled out of poverty by China, uh, specifically China. Um, it wasn't because of anything the US or Canada or Europe did that, that resulted in that those numbers. So people have to ignore that. And um, number two, it's taking the things that we've already been doing for the past 80 years under the IMF and World Bank, as far as debt enslavement um, and getting countries to accept take on western debts that they could not repay and that would result as John Perkins goes through in his confessions of an economics hitman that would then result in them uh, being forced to give up hard assets electricity grids roads and other things to western financiers that's what we've been doing that's how the that's why the world is so impoverished and at war today it's not because we tried to do good and we just failed it's because the intention was failure to get the exact effect of what we have today, controlled famine, starvation, all of these things. So what we've done is in these arguments, they just re-spin it and they project that onto China. And the fact is, when you look at the actual data, as I pointed out, there's $4 trillion of investments, foreign direct investments, tied to the Belt and Road Initiative. Much of that is in Africa. Much of that is in Southwest Asia. It's going to grow, actually, in Southwest Asia now that China has finally brokered a peace deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And also, this is part of the hopeful, durable peace, peace process in Yemen and Saudi Arabia, too, which has now been announced. Also, Turkey and Syria have been rebuilding bridges, Syria and Saudi Arabia, Syria and the, the Gulf states. It's, it's a completely new world that's been made possible because of the type of back, backdoor diplomacy of China, principally also Russia, but principally China, who's been able to offer um, a very lucrative alternative to the Gulf states that have been formally uh, appendages of Western imperialism for many, many, many decades, really since the British installed the House of Saud back in the early 30s as the official you know, family controlled by London that would then create this new synthetic state out of nothing. Um, So, all that to say, if you actually break down the graphs and look at, well, China puts similar quantities of money into Africa as does the World Bank and IMF and Western lenders. Compare now the breakdown of where that money goes, and you could look at these beautiful pie charts that have been done. People like Jason Ross, Hussein Askari, are two great researchers who have done a lot of work on this. People can Google them, Chinese debt trap diplomacy hoax, and uh, read some of the the actual core arguments that I've also used to great benefit. China has actually invested in vital infrastructure, vital, like electricity grids, water management systems, water sanitation, um, energy grids, where in, in the breakdown of those same numbers being given by the West, zero. It's all mining in the West, all pure extraction. China has mining, yes, so they do benefit from it. They're not angels. But they're, it's, it's called competent business. You don't want to destroy your business partner. You want to increase the quality of life. In Africa, if you think about the future, in 20, uh, 2055, 60% of Africa is going to be below the age of 30. That's a huge potential um, growth in consumer base. You know, so But they don't have much of a consumer base right now because of the poverty. But so China's actually working very hard, and you could see it through their investments into educational systems, building trade schools in every country they do business with to train Africans to have the skill sets to do it themselves, which doesn't happen overnight because it takes time to build real skill sets. But the difference is China's actually, you could see the effects over, over the past eight, nine years, and they've done it. They're doing it, whereas we've never done it. Um, they're building manufacturing, so you could process raw materials, and yes, the labor is still cheaper, so it's still financially more beneficial to utilize uh, cheap labor um, in Africa. But theirs is tied to a mo- like actually getting out of poverty. Where our our policy is, you know, use child labor in cobalt mines for for green new deals, of which there are forty thousand African children under Western directed cobalt mines. Um, China is is going into an area of of high controlled corruption that's been organized by the city of London and Wall Street for 80 years or more even, and trying to figure out how do you shift that boat into a new trajectory, which they're doing, which is why 40 of the 55 African countries have signed on to the Belt and Road Initiative and have joint, met with their Russian counterparts last month when uh, the ICC, sponsored by Soros, put Putin on uh, their, their arrest warrant list. That was a direct message that same day to the African leaders to say, don't meet with Russia. Russia, by the way, which has a very close bond um, with China, and 40 of the 55 African leaders still said, "Screw you! I'm going to meet with Putin anyway." And they signed huge deals, like Sudan, which built, you know, signed on to host a a Russian military base in the port of Sudan, and other other infrastructure and other things too with China. So you know, it's it's a lot of Freudian projection. And I would say for anybody who's who's reading this sort of thing, always look for the sources and get them to try, like, really try to not read the headlines or um, the surface claims, go to the sources and look at the numbers. Anybody could do it, but it takes a little bit more um, mind work, you know? Where
1: do you see China heading in the next, let's say, generation?
0: If there's no nuclear war, which I see is the only thing that could possibly derail the current momentum or the trajectory, um, China, and again, China and Russia, I see increasingly as two sides of the same um, civilizational force right now that is anti-Malthusian, they are uh, going to completely eliminate any poverty. They will have a reasonable middle-income society with it by 2050, the way things are going right now. like Reasonable by that, I mean nobody is worried at all about insecurity, poverty, or anything of the sort. Um, they're working very closely with many other countries to provide what Franklin Roosevelt had tried to bring online, which is a system of win-win cooperation. And I think if that is actualized, as we see with the effects in Southwest Asia, um, in the heartland is a potential period of peace whereby you can now finally, for the first time, have investment opportunities that are stable because that's what's been holding back Syria or Iraq or Libya from reconstruction is the lack of stability due to Western directed ISIS uh, operations and other terrorist cells that just keep lighting the place on fire, or in the case of Saudi Arabia under the direction of the British and the Americans has been to you know keep on bombing Yemen. Um, that instability makes it impossible to invest in the sorts of reconstruction projects that require five to 20 year wait times to start bearing fruit. So now that we actually have peace treaties being worked up, projects around built, connecting the Belt and Road Initiative with its multiple corridors in through China, down through Pakistan, into Afghanistan, into Iraq, into Iran, into Syria, into Lebanon, with branches going into Egypt vis-a-vis Jordan. Also branches now across the Gulf states where 2,000 kilometers of high-speed rail are being built up connecting the various Gulf states that could feasibly then extend down in through a new, uh, a reformed Yemen that now has Iran as part of the peace process um, that could revive an, the type of of projects that we saw being discussed back in 2009 before the arab spring which was the extension of rail and roads via bridges through the, ba- the Bab the babel mandel straits in yemen down into djibouti that would then connect into ethiopia and the already existing rail lines in ethiopia connecting djibouti and Addis ababa that could then easily extend all the way down through dakar and down south uh like east west through dakar in, in up into senegal and down into um you, know, you have Rwanda, you've got Kenya, you've got Sudan in the north that all have agreements that have been signed with the help of the Chinese and the Russians to build rail lines and connect them all together as part of a next generation Belt and Road initiative for integrating the continent in high speed rail and development corridors, which are more than just rail transport, 55,000 kilometers of, of highways. But also nine different rail lines uniting the continent for the first time in history in common gauge rail some of them being high speed all of which being electric are already endorsed by china and are part of the un not the un sorry the africa union uh agenda 2063 uh goal sets which china is defending and bringing online and these are beautiful beautiful ideas that are that are already moving ground you know so if this is not again sabotaged by nuclear war i see a potentially very bright future for the world, but uh, you know, there there's there's a lot of damage that these death cultists trying to manage the world order right now can still launch, unfortunately. I mean South Africa is a big player in the BRICS the BRICS Plus, which, you know, I mean, South Africa has a huge power potential that could be a, a real and it is, a real role model for energy pol- nuclear energy policy, which has not been permitted for most of Africa because you know south africa had a, a white apartheid government and so for the white states under the cold war because it was apartheid it it was allowed to grow some nuclear power but black africa has suffered under technological apartheid by design to keep them in a situation of maximum poverty and factionalization and tribalism over the past 80 years but now that you have a different sort of spirit in the BRICS, and you know a potential policy to revive a nuclear power um, development strategy for the continent, which is what Rosco- um, Rosatom has has made has signed something like fourteen different agreements with fourteen African nations around helping them, including Kenya, Egypt. A lot of a lot of them are black African countries to help them build Russian-made uh, nuclear reactors to provide vast, vast abundance of expensive yes but super high quality durable reliable long-term nuclear power that uh, the imperialists never permitted africa to use the imperialists want to keep africa stuck on you know if anything windmills and solar panels to keep them better divided so they, they can't support a heavy industry strategy because you can't you can't have heavy industry or you can't melt industrial grade steel with windmills and solar panels mm. you, you have nuclear power especially even if you want a desalination program. You know, you need nuclear power if you're going to do it right. So South Africa is being targeted, obviously, because you know their their foreign minister has said some pretty courageous things to uh, idiotic technocratic uh, IMF stooges in the West. You know, who try to berate and and you know talk down to Africa um, in very racist colonial fashion. And um, and Africa's played a South Africa's played a big role. In helping to cultivate an environment of of back toward back back channel dialogues and diplomacy amongst various other african countries and also you know being seeing that bangladesh is being brought online with the new bricks development bank egypt um turkey saudi arabia is even interested in going into the bricks increasingly i mean it's it's a whole new world so they're being targeted for the sorts of destabilizations we've seen done a a time and time and again and a lot of these same racist Cecil Rhodes networks are still there, even to this very day, operating mm. anti-China media messaging in South Africa to turn the South Africans against China and back into the arms of the uh, their British colonialist masters. Uh, it's still still underway.
1: We have to talk about Chinese mass surveillance state.
0: Well, you know, I think um, when you hear Justin Trudeau or Kissinger or anybody say good things about how much they like and admire China, their t- or Klaus Schwab, what they're talking about is specifically having central controls and surveillance. They, they like the idea of social credit. They like the idea of central controls to do things that don't involve pesky democratic influences. You know, They don't like what China philosophically is governed by as far as rejecting depopulation, rejecting Malthusianism, and going for win-win cooperation. They reject that. That's, that's what they want to... They despise that. So the mechanism is a mechanism. And I think China, you got to keep in mind, is has been for most of the past two and a half centuries in a weakened position. They've been reactive to um, a tempo uh, set by very powerful oligarchical interests centered in London and increasingly in Washington or Wall Street, actually. So they've been reactive. You got to sort of see the, the, the fight as, as far as who, where is the policy coming from? Where is this one world government agenda for depopulation coming from? Um, The way I would look at it is, in the case of China, the social credit process, which does exist, I'm, I'm I'm not a fan of social credit, don't get me wrong, but what you find is that it applies both to the governing class as well as it does to the population. Now, the other thing is that it's not tied to green decarbonization, and it's not tied to the sorts of behaviorist... Um, modifying practices that we see from those in the davos network um, that they want to bring online like in in the west they want to reward us with universal basic income tied to digital central bank currencies that could be uh you know um frozen or reduced or increased based upon our good or bad behavior but what is the standard of good and bad in the west what we see very clearly is the high value for the masses eating bugs which will probably if we don't eat you know meats or we just eat our good mRNA injected meats, and we we eat our bugs. We'll get higher growth score, um, social credit uh, infusions into our uh, bank accounts. If we do bad things, we drive too far, we diso- you know, we we disobey a 15 minute city boundary condition. We we will see those things rejected, right? So it's very very clearly tied to a new feudal. Technocratic slave class of bug-eating humans, living shorter lives, staying dumber, not thinking too much, not downloading the wrong things that involve reading, like you know, bad thoughts, like George Orwell or uh, C.S. Lewis or something that we're not supposed to think about. Whereas, okay, so what what do I see in China? The type of social credit that you see applied, and you can actually see this applied if you just talk to Chinese, look at what the Chinese have done, look at the case studies of where this occurs. It's usually if you're doing things like jaywalking, if you're breaking the law, if you're speeding, if you're not paying your debts, you're not paying your, your parking tickets, um, you will see a downgrade where you find yourself not able to access the highest speed rail networks. You have to go on the lower speed rail networks. You're not able to necessarily, if, you, if you're if you a rich person and you have the means to pay your debts, but you don't pay your debts, then you might find that your kid might not be able to get into that Ivy League school that they could if you just paid your debts and then they're back in. So you're able to easily also get out of your um. You could change your credit scores pretty easily. The other thing about the West is that they don't apply that to themselves. So in terms of the so-called elites of the West, they're going to be eating like farm-grade beef, okay? They're not going to be eating locusts. Um, that's not what the West is going to... They're still going to be using private jets and, and you know pumping out CO2. In the case of China, there's been 4.6 million Chinese party officials who have been punished so far in the last 10 years of Xi Jinping's crackdown on his own party. So what you have in the case of China is a situation where philosophically, we see in the practice that who are these 4.6 million Chinese party officials? Who are they? Well, they're former justice ministers. There's two of them who are former heads of Chinese intelligence, uh, the Chinese state security complex, who have been given jail terms of up to 30 years, in some cases, even death. These are representatives of the worst elements of the Shanghai billionaire clique. Uh, creatures that are tied to Davos like um Jack Ma for example China has their own Bill Gates Jeff Bezos character his name is Jack Ma he's he's part of the chinese clique of uh, the the shanghai clique of billionaires that was cultivated under british colonialism and continued to be cult- cultivated this whole time as part of this this secure this fifth column he called for an essentially a financial coup d'etat against the government back in 2020 that was that was essentially him calling for a coup d'etat and overthrow um he was rallying the oligarchs of china the way that we saw you know similar things being done against putin since putin started declaring war on the yeltsin era oligarchs who were built up like anatoly Chubai or the yegor gaidar networks who brought in davos into russia into saint petersburg back in 1997 and again in 2008 so you saw there, there has been an effort by the Western controllers of these local oligarchs to encourage them to kill Putin, to to bring back the Yeltsin era, beautiful age of the 1990s, when George Soros and the CIA were controlling Russia. They're trying to do the same thing, and that's what they tried heavily when Jack Ma gave his famous uh, call to action, saying uh, we need to to decentralize. Chinese finance and uh, and essentially he was calling for for getting rid of the Chinese state banking system and going for free market openness under the control of the IMF is essentially what he said and he was basically pulled by his collar he wasn't killed but they took the guy out they stripped him of his assets and of his access to the Chinese Communist Party he they 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 put him in his mansion they said you go have fun in your mansion now and uh, they put him in his place how wonderful would it be if we had something in our Western governments that could do that with Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and Branson we don't but they did it they've cracked down on some of the highest level most vitriolic evil networks that have been working to destroy China from within over the past several years 4.6 million right um, and then so they're not all extreme it's not like all, all of these people have been getting 20 30 year sentences some have just been kicked out of the party a lot of the and it, it, they're they're a lot less tolerant so if you're if you're one of the 99 million members of the Chinese Communist Party, there's going to be a, a much gr- lower threshold of tolerating your corruption um, than if you were, like if you're receiving money from a CIA front group, oh yeah, you're in trouble if you're a member of the Chinese Party, Communist Party. If you're just a, a regular person, generally speaking, the, the, the effects are not that big of a deal. And people say, oh, but you can't protest in China. You can't have a bull crap. You, there are hundreds of protests every month in China. That's part of the way the Chinese uh, system works is it interfaces with constant surveys of the people on municipal, regional, uh, provincial, and federal levels. There's constant surveying process. And when goals are not met by those administrators who are assigned to carry out specific tasks to build a water system or to manage the, uh, the garbage pickups or to do something even bigger, when those things fail and the population responds in accord that they're unsatisfied there are thousands and thousands of case studies of these Chinese um, administrators who are punished who are taken down they lose their their they, they fall down the pyramid or the, the 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 ladder they could get back up by doing good things again but it's a very different way of thinking about a meritocracy like we don't have a meritocracy we got a, a Yale skull and bronzes Rhodes scholar type of, of system of administration of hereditary, uh, property rights that that manages the oligarchy of the West. You know, you inherit if you're born into an upper crust family in the West, um, or the or one of the smaller dynasties like the Bronfmans, they're a smaller dynasty, or the Bushes, a lower dynasty. But you're you're going to inherit a certain trust, a certain set of properties, a certain set of titles. That will you might be you might have a, um, a dynastic set of, of privileges that give you access to an Ivy League education, but you have to carry out the family tradition on behalf of your masters. That's the way the, the Western system has, has been wired, especially since the murder of John F. Kennedy. It's always been a problem, but we had more access to authentic um, meritocratic systems where it used to be the case in Canada or or in the transatlantic at, at large in the 1940s, 50s, it was unheard of to go to business management school at Harvard and then like administer as, as a politician um an aerospace industry or a medical industry you had to be somebody with actual living knowledge of engineering to administer um something like that or you had to be mm. a doctor with world experience to be an administrator of medicine you today it's totally different you're just indoctrinated into the science of management and now you can go and like control things you don't understand at all in china it's a different case they have the greatest rates of engineers and Actual engineers with practical, real-world experience in their government, in their federal government, who know and understand the processes that they're managing. It's not like that in the West. So it's a very different. It's it's a level of competence that it's difficult for us to understand because we've been living in a surreal world um, for so long. And um, yeah, I mean, it it, it takes a while to think about it, but it's not. It's not what we've been told. It's not this. It's not Mm -hmm. this slave society. Like, like I was saying, like we've, we're often encountering. So the, the summary is um, we need to focus, focus. There's so much, there's so much What what's increasingly become known as fifth generational epistemological warfare going on. Um, the, the, the battlefield of the mind is a very complex place where um, there is a fight over what doctrines, what um, filters we absorb into our soul that we then look out upon the world and evaluate through what prism, that is a, a, a central battle point around which everything else flows. The battle over perceptions, the battle over mind. It's not a new thing. It's not like our society today is is any more sophisticated or complex or uh, than it was in the past. It's not like in the past we had simpler times where You know good people could do good things and fight evil and blah 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 and now we're in a more complex time where things are so much worse it's always been really complex it's just that we we've been dumbed down so we we think of things that used to be more normal to think about about the science of conspiracies the science of history we think about that in a more confused way now and so that confusion gives a breeding is a breeding ground for all sorts of misinformation psyops half truths that are spread out into the zeitgeist and we've, we're losing our focus. So going into the, the coming weeks and months, the battle is on. I think that we, we've got a very high risk of both an economic meltdown that will be a chain reaction, unstoppable process that will coincide with a, heat, a heating up of the, uh, the war front, which could go nuclear. Those things tend to run hand in hand. Um, that's that's a, high, a very high level of danger for civilization as a whole. Uh, doesn't mean it's going to happen. Nothing is predetermined. Free will is is shaping this stuff. But we have to re- be more disciplined with our 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 minds. Use more mental hygiene and rigor than we're used to. Don't expect to be spoon fed anything from simply one source that will then create a conviction inside of our hearts. We have to go to sources, scratch the surface of the sources, and see if it if it passes litmus tests or not, and look at history. I think being being aware of the the contextual battleground that shaped the 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 environment that we're we're living in and the opportunities going into the future it's really important that we do that um with as few blind assumptions as possible um so yeah focus we need to focus all right quickly
1: how can i follow you matt
0: um well i guess the quickest thing and best thing would be to go to canadianpatriot.org where um i got a stack of books here so all of the books um that i've written co-written with my wife cynthia are available easy to find as pdfs or hard copies on that website canadianpatriot.org so you should people listening should not be satisfied with anything i said they should prove me wrong i mean I, i put out the thesis i got a lot of footnotes See if you can find holes in my thinking and let me know. I will. I will be grateful if you do. Um, and I want to. I want to be proved wrong, proven wrong on many of these points. So please, I challenge everybody. Please. <laughs> the other thing is they can go to uh, risingtidefoundation.net, and that's uh, more of a cultural educational platform that I, I also manage with my wife. And we do weekly seminars on the cover-ups in science. Uh, we do we do uh, study groups, readings of source material. Going back to Plato, Platonic dialogues, and a lot of things in between that were not given in school. So that's a fun process of socializing the creative and, and, and learning process every Wednesday night. If people want to be involved with those, um, I suggest send me an email at info at yeah that's, that's already a lot of stuff if people do those things.
1: Matt eric thank you for joining me in the trenches.
0: All right, Jeremy, it was a pleasure. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.